When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, one of these gigs, when I jumped down off the bandstand and this guy with long hair beckoned me over and he, he said, uh, do you want to join a band? I said, well, I'm in one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but um, we don't, we're, we're professional. I said, what do you mean? You, 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 don't, you, don't have a, you don't have other jobs? He says, no. I said, yeah, <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do that. So Monday morning, guys, I've got another gig. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now this is the last episode we're going to put out before Christmas. We'll take a little bit of a break for the festivities and we'll come back in mid-January or so. I've already got a couple of the interviews lined up for you for 2021 in the bag. They're all ready to go. Some great chats with excellent stories and you can really, really look forward to that. Now before we dive into episode 12, we'll start with the usual kind of thank yous and shout outs. So a thank you to Dave Pierce from the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show for sharing lots of our posts on Twitter this week. Also to Ian David 420 for... Lots of his help on Twitter too. And to Bex Goose, who wrote a three-tweet review of the podcast. Not just a one-tweeter. No, no. She wrote three tweets on the podcast, singing the praises of Vintage Rock Pod with a hand-drawn picture to accompany it as well. In terms of reviews, thanks to Fan of the 80s and Jake Gallon, who left us five stars and lovely reviews on Apple iTunes this week as well. It means a lot. It really does help us with the rankings. And speaking of which, thank you to our listeners in Nigeria, who tipped us into the top ten in Nigeria for the music interviews chart over there on Fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, it's crazy, but thank you very much for everyone in Nigeria that's listening along to Vintage Rock Pod. Also, we're going to add Ecuador, Ecuador, get it right, and Argentina to the list of countries listening to the podcast, which makes it 34 around the world. Thank you one and all for everything. It's been a mad two months. I really didn't expect it when I launched this to be getting national newspaper coverage and being a guest on BBC Radio. It's just been bonkers. So thank you for listening and getting in touch on social media and email and all that sort of stuff. Thank you very much for your reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts really does make a big difference. Right, without the way, it's time to fire into this week's show, and I can tell you I've got a great interview with a silky smooth drummer lined up for you, with tales of touring Europe before he made it big, then the story of hitting the highs, and also drumming for Bob Dylan on one of his big albums too. Fantastic. It's a great chat with Dire Straits founding member Pick Withers. That's coming up very, very shortly, but we'll start where we always do, and that's by getting through the big rock stories of the week with our friend, author and journalist with Record Collector Magazine and Universal Music's youdiscovermusic.com, Tim Peacock. And it's that time of the week where we catch up on all the big rock stories and some of the funny ones too with our friend, author and journalist, Tim Peacock. Hi, Tim. 
Hi, Paul. Good to be here. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. It's the last one before Christmas. I'm wondering what you've got lined up for us. It's usually eclectic, and I'm, I'm hoping this will be exactly the same. It kind of is, yes, Paul, but it, it's all kind of towards with live events tonight, actually, but they're all of different types. And you'd say live events with all the lockdowns going on. Well, all, all will be revealed in a moment. So <laughs> let's go to the first story. First story tonight is um, about an absolute legend, uh, David Bowie, um, which is about... Uh, um, there's going to be a David Bowie live stream. Um, it's going to be called a Bowie celebration just for one day. Um, and it's going to be streamed globally on January the 8th. Uh, it's to mark what would have been his uh, 74th birthday. Uh, and it's going to be hosted by his longest standing band member, which is Mike Garston, his pianist, who a lot of people probably remember him for. He played on everything from Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs through to some of Bowie's later records. And... Um, the event is it's going to raise money for Save the Children. Um, there's uh, quite a um, star-studded lineup of people performing. Uh, I see Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, uh, the actor Gary Oldman, who actually everyone will probably remember from Sid and Nancy, and of course Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy recently. And uh, he was actually a big friend of Bowie's back in the day. They, they've all been added to that. They're all involved in it. And recently there's been names like uh, Adam Lambert from Queen, uh, Duran Duran and so forth. They've always been, oh. and people like Ian Hunter from Not the, uh, yeah. the Hoople. So there's quite, oh, and, and Peter Frampton as well. So there's quite a, an eclectic selection of people there. That's that, that one. Sounds good. Yeah. Now that one is, uh, the thing about these live stream events now, you actually, it, it seems to be becoming the new normal with them, Paul, really. Yeah. It's become a thing where it starts, it kicks off at 2 p.m. UK time, on the 8th of January, <clears throat> um, and it will be available for ticket holders around the world. But it's one of these that you have to buy. I think it's $25 you have to buy. You have to buy a ticket to see. So if you're now watching a concert, you're watching it online instead of going to the venue. But it is going to be available apparently for 24 hours after the, the initial steam stream goes live. So, um, yeah, obviously, if you're a Bowie fan, you'd probably want to check that one out anyway. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good for, for most rock fans, to be honest with you. Bowie's music kind of is fantastic for anybody to listen to. And when you mention some of the guests there, I'm guessing they'll be performing a lot of his songs. So, yeah, it's going to be one to certainly look out for. So what's next then on the on the live music trail? OK, this one's um, with a bit of a difference this time. Uh, we probably remember the band Foreigner, the American band for, you know, classic hits oh, yeah. like uh, Cold as Ice and Waiting for a Girl Like You. and Mick Jones and Company, yeah, yeah. Mick Jones and Company, number of lineup changes, of course, as well. But uh, <laughs> they, they have um, announced this week that they're going to be headlining the first socially distant music festival ever, apparently, in America. This is going to be, obviously. Okay. The timing is interesting with, with this one. Um, have a guess what time of next year they're advertising this for before I tell you. Just have a guess at it. Well, considering all the COVID stuff, I'd say it'd have to be late spring, summer sort of onwards. Yeah, exactly. You would think so. But they say on the 23rd and 24th of March, it's as soon as that. Ooh, this is okay. it, this particular event. Um, it's, it's taking place in Florida. Um, they're taking the stage uh, concert scene at fr the Front Yard Festival. It's at a place called the Dr. Phillips Centre in Orlando, which, of course, most of us probably think of for Dis Disney World and various things like that. But um, anyway, apparently they seem very um, sure that this thing is going to go ahead. It's a it's purpose-built thing, live entertainment event designed to re-engage artists and guests in a safe, socially distanced setting. 
Um, it takes place over six months, apparently, altogether. This is the early part of it, but there will be shows later. Uh, and they say that it will observe, it will strictly observe COVID-19 health and safety protocols. So I don't know. I mean, you say to yourself, March mm. seems a bit ambitious, doesn't it? But they seem determined that it's going to happen. Well, fingers crossed so, it does. And let's, let's hope we get to hear Foreigner, because Foreigner are fantastic. I really, really do like their, 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 their back catalogue. Yeah, yeah. They were they were down for um, playing uh, the Rambling Man Festival. You know that that's one of the. I don't know if you have you heard of Rambling Man at all, Paul. It's a UK festival. Do you know? That? Yeah, yeah. They were supposed to be playing that, but I think that didn't happen for all of the usual reasons. With a bit of luck, they'll be coming back to perform at that one. So, so anyway, that's my second one. And Good last story stuff. tonight is another New Year one. We were talking about Kiss before. This is a rival possibility for people if they don't want to go on, if they don't want to watch Kiss. You could perhaps tune in to watch, uh, if you're a fan of uh, ZZ Top, um, Billy Gibbons is doing a live stream on New Year's Eve this time. And it's it's one of his Jungle Show concerts that he's doing. Do you know about this at all? No, I've not. I've never heard of this. Jungle Show? The Jungle Show. Are you talking about jungle music or are you talking about him swinging through the trees like Tarzan? <laughs> it's neither quite thing. It's not, not either of the above, actually. But uh, he's been doing these. It's apparently the fifth consecutive year though it, it is an interesting image i admit you know the beard and so forth um but apparently he's been doing this this is the fifth year he's done uh, he's done four consecutive years of these previously uh it's a kind of a blues supergroup jam really that he does there's people like jimmy vaughan and sue foley chris layton different performers uh they play from a venue called antones it's in austin texas um so it's the heart of the lone star state so obviously billy's on home turf there and uh, this time it, it will be a live stream normally of course it's a regular live event this is the first time they've live streamed it uh but the band will be performing as usual it will air at 8 p.m in various time zones around the world uh 8 p.m in london sydney so if you prefer a bit of good old southern boogie instead of uh, checking out uh, kisses uh magnificent uh, new year's event you could you could check that out instead now this is another one though again that you have to pay for if you want to check this out it's 25 dollars. it's the jungle show official website if you just go to billy gibbons official website billy gibbons jungle show it all the information is there and yeah. there's packages come with it you can get a show poster which is signed by the band and a special vip bandana apparently these are the different <laughs> among the things that are up for grabs so there's a few there's a few bits of merch there i can see you in a zz top bandana there tim you definitely can i used to actually have a few not a zz top one but i do have a few so i think yeah i might tune into that you never know might be good for new years it might be indeed thank <laughs> you very much tim for that uh, excellent rundown yeah. of some of the live things we get to see uh, on zoom mostly but uh, that's kind of the way of the world and uh, thank you very much for, for bringing yes. us the news stories of the last few weeks and uh, have a lovely christmas and we'll catch up with you in the new uh, uh, new year thanks very much indeed paul same to you Thanks to Tim, as always, and all that chat about online music concerts and things like that links us really nicely to what we're about to talk about next with our interview. And now it's the first time I've managed to interview a second person from the same band. Episode 2 was John Ilsley, bass player with Dire Straits, and today is Dire Straits' original drummer, played on the first four massive albums with them, but he's done so much more too, including playing on an album with the legend that is Bob Dylan. I caught up with Pitt Withers a week or so ago, and what a nice guy he is as well, so warm and welcoming. We spoke for about an hour, so unfortunately I've had to trim it down somewhat just to fit into the podcast, but he's got some great tales and stories from his incredible career as a drummer. Not just the past, though, he's got a special Zoom gig he's going to tell us about that's taking place in January with his new band too. So sit back and please enjoy this week's interview with the wonderful Pick Withers. Pick Withers 
Now it's time to speak to our guest this week, and I'm delighted to say that it's a man who is one of the silkiest drummers in all of music. Welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Pick Withers. Well, thank you, Paul. It's quite a nice introduction, that. From a very, very early age, you, you wanted to join uh, like a military marching band kind of thing, didn't you? Because you just wanted to get your hands on the drum, didn't you? Yes, that's right. Um, I think when you, when you go back to the 50s, the ability to have any experience was, was, was very limited. You know, I mean, it was, there's one radio, there's one TV. And if you don't encounter stuff on that, then you're not going to really be introduced to it unless you have somebody in the family that, you know, is a character. So when I was a kid, the two things that really stood out was this marching band. And they, they belonged to a church. It was what's called a boys brigade. It's like a, a youth organization, not, not dissimilar to the Boy Scouts. But... Um, the Boys Brigade is more affiliated to the Methodist church. And once they get you in there, you know, they want you to be good Christians and things, you know. So you, you, you're obliged to go to church as well, which I, I didn't really enjoy too much. I joined that organisation purely to get hold of a drum. But they had everything down pat, you know. It was just basically, well, now you're in the, in the company, you, you, you really can't be in the band for a year because you've got to march behind. So you do that for a year and then you go back and you say, well, I've done that. Can I have a drum now? Oh, oh, oh well, <laughs> yeah, if they all want a drum, you've got to blow the bugle for a year. So I blew the blew my brains out. <laughs> I can still do a risque last post. And then after that, in the third year, because there's a natural wastage within the, the company, because kids go to university, leave, become too old, whatever it is. So there's always a vacancy and I've got a drum. Parallel to that, I'd, I'd already decided that I wanted a drum kit. And this wasn't going to happen from my parents, particularly my mother, who made, uh, I think, similar to all families in those days, the mother made executive decisions. The father put mm -hmm. the money on the table. So within three months or four months, maybe six months tops of having this drum, they could see that I was really into it. And they, they got me a drum kit for the next, uh, the next Christmas, so it's about, about this time of year, really. It was £14, which probably be about more like £100 in today's money. And it was just um, what's called an Ajax kit made in by Boozy and Hawks. And uh, three pieces, uh, a hi-hat symbol, the ones that go like this, and another symbol, which sounded like a dustbin lid, but to me it sounded fantastic. And the, the band of the time was The Shadows. And there was always a drum solo on their LPs, and you would learn it. And they, they used to have a drum solo called um, Little B, which is Little B for Brian Bennett. Um, when the Beatles happened, um, it was just, the gloves were off. Everybody just went crazy. I was, I was still at school and playing in bands that could play in the social clubs in the Leicester area. And they would have a concert hall. So, and they would have an entertainment maybe three, three acts over a weekend. One would be a singer, one would be a ventriloquist. And when the Beatles came along, they all wanted little Beatles. So you, and I remember once I was still at school, it was a free ride for me because I was, I was always the youngest in the, the early years. So I just went along for the, for the trip, really. I didn't have to make decisions. I didn't have to make any conscious decisions about what songs to play. I could just turn up for rehearsal and do it and just get on with learning how things work and he said we'll have an early rehearsal on friday after school be there as soon as you can uh, fridays was the day that uh, pop records singles were released so one of the lads had ordered a beatles record it was i want to hold your hand 
And the idea was to for him to hot foot it from the shop to the house where we rehearsed, put it on the turntable, listen to it, learn it, learn how to play it, and play it in the social club that evening, be the first group in Leicester to, <laughs> to play it, you know, like, like a little kind yeah, of Philip. Yeah. So this whole thing just opened up a whole new potential vista for me. And eventually I percolated up the running order and eventually played in what would be possibly construed as the second most uh, respected band in Leicester. And we stopped playing social clubs and did dance halls. And we had a Ford Thames van, which was a step up from a Bedford dormobile. And we would uh, travel outside of the city limits, which was really more exciting and play places like Peterborough and Lincoln, do the GI air bases yeah. and stuff and start to get exposed to other stuff because you go to a, an American airbase in those days, it's like mm -hmm. Little America. So you would, you would hear American yeah. records and, oh, what's that? Your whole potential for influence starts to open yeah. out exponentially. And it's the same with the Liverpool. Liverpool was a huge port. And there'd be a transfer of information from New York. And the guys would play on the, on the liners, go into New York, into Manhattan, being records back. And that's how the Beatles were initially influenced, you know. So... As soon as they were, you know, a, a, an entity in Germany, there I found myself in this respected group in Leicester. And we started doing auditions in London with a view to going to oh, Germany. Right. Tell us a bit about the time in Germany then, because while you were there, there was, there was some gruelling shifts, wasn't it? Was it up to 10 hours a day playing songs and things like that? We went to Hamburg first and played in three clubs there. That wasn't kind of so bad because it's again, it's another port. And you get all this cross fertilization of ideas and stuff. But when we started going to places like um, Nuremberg, um, a lot of it went over the top of my head. You know, I didn't think Nuremberg, oh, war trials. I just thought, oh, Nuremberg, you know, it looks like a gothic city to me. Uh, I didn't think about war trials at all. And we played in this club, which was, mm -hmm. again, I mean, it's patently an escort bar. <laughs> you know, these, these, these girls, a bit like, would dance, would be hostesses, you know. I was so green, Paul, you know, I just, I mean, I didn't really clock it at the time. I just saw little cameos of, you know, scenes going on. There was like an L-shaped room. We played for 45 minutes on and 15 off for about at least six hours. And then at the weekends, we, we would do a, an afternoon shift where they would just, they would let um, very young people, young teenagers in, but, you know, as Germany was in those days, I mean, they may have lost the war, but they, they, they certainly won a, an element of the peace because they had a much more liberal kind of lifestyle. You know, I mean, places weren't closing until four o'clock in the morning. You know, we were walking out and it was almost daylight. I mean, basically, where we really fleshed out our repertoire was that to, to play for so many hours... You, you had to learn a lot of stuff. You, you didn't want to be re repeating yourself. I, I, you know, we went with 30 songs and we came back to England um, for Christmas with 120 songs. A lot of it is just a very positive experience, you know. But when I first went there, I, mean, I cried my eyes out. You know, I just felt a long, long way from home. We had to have work permits. You know, it was before the EC. Now we're going back to that, you know, which is a shame. For me. <laughs> there you go. Yes, we'll not get into that. Um, and speaking of, of, of other countries in Europe, you, you ended up in Italy, didn't you, for a number of years when you signed a contract and everything? Having played in Germany and got this um, taste for not doing the day job, <laughs> you know, we, we came back from one of our three months and then we 
did another two months and we came back. We were trying to, I was trying to sign on to take unemployment benefit. And they, they said, well, we're not a music agency. You have to have a, you have to, if you want to take unemployment benefit, you'll have to go to interviews and pr- provide evidence that you've actually been. And so I went to one of these, these an interview for a warehouseman. And I was so blasé and, and uh, off the cuff about it that he offered me the job. <laughs> and this was Friday. And I was to start on the Monday. But I, on, over the weekend, we had uh, three gigs with this band. They were called the Barclay Squares. Now, one of these gigs, when I jumped down off the bandstand from the first set, and this guy with long hair beckoned me over, and he, he said, uh, do you want to join a band? I said, well, I'm in one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but um, we don't, we're, we're professional. I said, what do you mean? You, 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 don't, you, don't have a, you don't have other jobs? He says, no. I said, yeah, <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do that. So Monday morning, I said, guys, I've got another gig. And Monday morning, I, I went off to from Leicester to Northampton and they were, uh, became uh, the drummer for a group called The Primitives. Mm-hmm. And they played mainly in Birmingham, in the Birmingham area. Um, and then we had this idea to go to Italy. The manager said, go to Italy for the summer and play in these, one of these clubs at the seaside. And it was a six-week engagement. And at the end of the six weeks, the, the manager of the club said, I would like to stay and get you a recording contract in Italy. And a, a deal was done. And we ended up staying. And I um, there are people still in that band now that are uh, continue to live in Italy. But I played there for three years. And it was a great experience for me. Now, the, the other big thing, obviously, we haven't mentioned it in the interview, but Dire Straits, you're obviously the, the original drummer and you, and you drummed with them for, for the first four albums. I mean, just to begin with, how, how did you meet the, the rest of the guys then? How, how did you join Dire Straits? Because obviously your background with, with different bands and well, I met touring Mark all over. Through, through a mutual um, friend, uh, I had been working with a guy called uh, Rab Noakes, who, you, who uh, we mentioned prior to the interview. And he was working with a guy called Rod Clements on bass. And... Uh, Rod had been in a group called Lindisfarne, mm-hmm. a big, big Geordie band. And uh, he introduced me to, to Cy Cow, who was a, a, a fellow member of Lindisfarne. And he had a big house in North London and he would rent rooms to musicians. And I was quite, I was in London by, by this time and I was just fed up with renting from landlords who were very unsympathetic towards musicians or, you know, you couldn't really go about your daily business practicing or whatever. It was seen as a social, it was seen as a social misfit really in those days. So he rented me a room and one day Mark came round because I had a, a Rebox, a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And he was wanted to, Mark wanted to put some ideas down. I happened to be in that day and I offered to put some uh, percussion hand type things, not a drum, not a drum kit. Mm-hmm. Per se. That was it really. It was just, what I would do in a normal course of events if there was anything going. And then he knocked on the door about six months later and said, oh, remember me? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, he said I've got a band. Will you come and play with us? And, and I went down to Deptford. And there was uh, John and uh, Mark's brother, David. And it kind of evolved out of that, really. And that whole rehearsal kind of structure culminated in making a, a, a demo, which I suggested we go to a place called Pathway to use because it was cheap and had a good reputation. And then John had access to Charlie Gillett, who's a disc jockey come rock and roll chronicler, who's very respected in 
in the music business. Um, and he said, I, I think I can get Charlie Gillett to listen to this, which he duly did because he had a radio show in those times, Charlie did. But he was very cute. He said, look, lads, um, thank you. I will listen to the tape. And he was very, the cute thing is this, and all people should bear this in mind. Um, he said, I won't listen to it while you're here, but I, I do promise I will listen to it and I will give you a reaction. So mm -hmm. what he did, he, he didn't duly listen to the tape. What he didn't tell us um, was that he was so taken with the Sultans, which was on the tape, that he, and, and the day we happened to visit him in his house, um, he was compiling his playlist and his timings to, to make his 90-minute Sunday lunchtime program. And he said he spent a lot of the time rejigging his playlist order in order to accommodate Sultans of Swing. And we didn't really uh, know any of this until it had already happened. And people, we, I think we were out of town playing somewhere. And people said, oh, we heard you on the radio. I said, well, probably true. But, uh, so we phoned Charlie. Yeah, I played you. And he said, what's more, when I did play you, um, I got this reaction and then the, basically uh, an artist, an, uh, somebody from a record company phoned, some, uh, a lawyer phoned and somebody, an agent phoned. And this kind of created like a, a snowball effect. We noticed that people, people with faces we didn't recognize were coming to gigs that we were playing at. And that culminated in a, in a recording contract for Phonogram. And then we made the, the first record, which was basically the backlog of Mark's best songs so far in his life, you know, uh, and that just took off. We didn't take off immediately. In, in fact, in England, it was very hard to to get get it away, so to speak. There were all kinds of yeah. obstacles. Radio wouldn't play it, said it was too long. <laughs> it was about six minutes 40. Mm -hmm. um, other radio said, said it's too wordy, too many words, you know. But basically what happened was the record began to sell in America and there was a radio show in on Radio 2, that actually played the top 20 or top 40 even in America on Sunday. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it was Paul Gambaccini or something like that played it. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, this LP we'd made, been out for ages in England, done nothing. It was in the charts in America. So they began to play it in this chart show format. And all of a sudden, the whole thing was broken open and, and people began to, began to play it in England. They thought we were American. Yeah. So how did you feel oh. then with, obviously, you've done a lot of touring, but you've played a long time in Germany and different bands in Italy and things like that. How did you feel then, personally, when you're in a band like Dire Straits that have just gone gone big? How did that feel to you? Um, well, I was really pleased because, you know, there was just really, I mean, it's gratifying in a way, you know, that you, you, you've come to this point where you can have some kind of financial security you know depending on how you 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 manage your affairs you know mm -hmm. and uh, i was the thing i liked about it one aspect of it that i did like was uh, when i met some of the people that prior to dire straits i'd worked with that was in london for about five or six years be before dire straits you know just doing lots of sessions and yeah. meeting different people they just said oh it's so pleased to to see that you've made it because they wouldn't have equated the um, me to this bank. They, people thought they were American, but then they mm -hmm. see it, they see the bit. Oh, it's him. <laughs> that was for me more kind of uh, a personal cherished memory that, that you get this feedback from people that 
know you and are genuinely pleased for you, you know. And you had a lot of success, obviously, with Dire Straits and, and huge albums and big tours and everything like that. And was it four albums you, you performed on? And then you decided to call it quits with the band. I mean, was that just you felt that was time for you? You'd, you'd done enough? You'd had enough of the, that sort of life with it all? Or what was the decision you know, behind that? It, it's just there are lots of elements that, that came together to, to make, you know, I think oh, I just want to do something else now. You know, um, we started to play very loud, which I didn't really mm-hmm. I, um I was beginning to have trouble with my ears, although I didn't really realise what that was at the time. I just remember coming off stage and having trouble with my balance, you know, for readjusting after being on stage. Um, so that was that element. Uh, the music was going away from stuff where I felt that the drums could make a, a significant con- contribution or certainly be part of the conversation you know okay it was getting much more kind of this song is black this song is blue and and starting to do rock stadium kind of stuff where mm-hmm. it, it's just not just doesn't translate to the way i wanted to, to to play you know and then there are sort of a whole raft of personal aspects the dynamics yeah. between me and individuals which i don't really want to discuss in this kind of mm-hmm. you know it just sounds like sour grapes or whatever it is, you know, whatever counter-proposal. Counter yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's time to do something else now. Lovely. And amongst those something else things, you, you ended up playing with Bob Dylan, didn't you, on his on his, one of his huge albums. How did that come about? That sounds incredible. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that more than I died straight, straight through it because it <laughs> has such a good rhythm section. I played with a guy called Tim Drummond who was just sensational bass player but uh you know of great kind of stock he'd played the white guy southern guy played with james brown i mean he, you know a white guy playing bass with james brown um and uh, of course mr zimmerman himself and barry beckett who had played piano on our second album and, and produced it really communicate and we went to muscle shoals which is a kind of famous studio in in the south in alabama you know so there are all those elements but it was also i mean i i was a big bob dylan fan from blood on the tracks desire uh like a rolling stone nashville skyline you know um so it was a big thing for me you know and at first uh, my my initial response was i wanted to run away from it because i was terrified that i i wouldn't be able to function within that kind of environment you know i remember the first day in the studio i was just with the cans on i think mm-hmm. some, something in my head was going that's bob dylan <laughs> so it's like <laughs> i was playing along to a record that had already been made <laughs> and that's not what you want to be doing you know you want to be you know you want to be making a contribution and and the thing that i found apart from tim and, and barry and, and of course mark was on rhythm he's just great rhythm player um and he did the, did the lead and all the kind of filigree stuff as overdubs later. But so it was a really bloody good band. And the thing with Dylan was that you, you basically, if you didn't have anything within the first three attempts to record something, he would move on. But also within that kind of superstructure, his vocal would be what what would survive with what we call the master vocal. In other words, the vocal that you hear on the record and CD. Whereas most people in, of that era would 
because basically they might sing for reference, but it was it wouldn't be any attempt whatsoever to give a definitive performance. They would be focusing on aspects of the 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 backing track. You know, the drums the way I want. Is it feeling? You know, is this the right tempo? And oh, this is the first verse, same as the you know second verse, same as the first. Then a little, maybe a little kind of indication of on a guitar or a piano what 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 was going to happen. But but basically, just looking at the bass, the drums, rhythm, guitar, maybe a keyboard. You know, so so with Bob, you, at least you, you got that. You got some real, a really good insight into where he wanted to be, and I I, I just really appreciated that. And it was a yeah, it was a it was a really good groundbreaking record for me to 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 actually function in that kind of high octane environment. Whereas Dire Straits didn't feel like that to me, you know, at all at any stage. Mm-hmm. Just didn't feel. It just felt like just a bunch of lads who played a bunch of songs, and all of a sudden they, they started playing to more than a bunch of people. And so it was never never had that real kind of significance of being something more groundbreaking you know but to play with dylan you know is, is already a you know a living legend <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and then just to, just to move things on to, to kind of now then you've, you've got a new band out now haven't you slim pickings yeah, right. I, i'm trying to i'm going to do a zoom gig in uh is yes. in uh january January, it's 22nd of January, 2021. You can go to Facebook, go to the official page for Pick Withers, and mm-hmm, yep. you get information there from it. But it's uh, I'm going to call it Slim Pickings at the moment. And uh, it's basically an attempt to re- rediscover all the old, um, the old rhythm and blues records from the 50s and 60s and, uh, as a starting point. Because in that era, everybody on the record had to be there to record. It, it, it wasn't a, a situation where you could record a guitar and then then a voice, and then maybe add a guitar. And you know, you, it, it all had to be done in one take. So that's kind of the starting point for, for what I want to do. It's a kind of attempt to rediscover all that kind of immediacy of playing in a, in a group. I want music to be live and... Uh, Sometimes it can go tits up. That's what you have to kind of, you know, face. <laughs> so what can we expect from this gig you've got then, this Zoom concert? You're doing it from from Liverpool, is that correct? That's right. It's in Liverpool. Slim Pickings, and it's on Friday the 22nd of January uh, 2021. So it's there It's there to be had. But um, I'm very keen to, to play live because uh, I just think it's the last place where you know, people can't mess with what you do, you know. It's the real essence of music. I mean, that's a perfect place for us to finish, uh, Pick. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for your time. Speak to you soon. Bye now. There you go, the wonderful Pick Withers, one of the silkiest drummers around. He just plays with such an effortless beauty. And you can watch him play at his best when that live Zoom gig rolls around in January. Something for us all to look forward to, especially right now. As he said there, head over to the official Pick Withers Facebook page, give it a like and you'll find all the information about how you can get tickets to watch that gig there. It's not to be missed.
Now, if you're waiting for the uh, Vintage Rock Pod Top 5 that usually happens around now, you'll need to stick around to the end of the pod this week because it's something a little bit different. So that means it's time for us to head over to Los Angeles and catch up with our good friend Maudie from History of Rock Facebook page to see what weird and wonderful rock facts he's got lined up for us on this episode. So it's that time of the show where we speak to our friend over in Los Angeles, as always, our good friend Maudie from History of Rock on Facebook and Ranker.com. He's going to fill us in with some more crazy lists and rock facts and stuff, aren't you, Maudie? Yes, sir. I'm back, Paul. I'm back and ready. Today, I have a very interesting list about bands whose name was inspired by some kind of historical figure or just, just history in general. So we can get started, actually, with one of the most surprising ones that I found. Uh, on the list, and it's only number four. In case you didn't know, Jethro Tull, which won the first, uh, what is it, metal, <laughs> metal Grammy, Grammy ever, yeah, yeah. right? Over Metallica, another tidbit <laughs> that we can talk about some other time. But Jethro Tull, you'll never guess. Um, it, it sounds awesome. It sounds great. It sounds like, you know, just like what you'd expect the band to sound like. But Jethro Tull is actually a man. Okay. And this man was a very important English uh, historical figure um, who invented the seed drill in the 18th century. Uh, And he's considered one of the fundamental figures of agricultural revolution. So I guess his inventions literally changed the world. Um, But it's some name that you'd never know unless, you know, you'd look up the band and go, hey, what? Who's this botanist in history? You know, like invented the seed drill, literally changed the world for everyone but uh we'll never know his name other than you know rock and roll in the flute <laughs> very bizarre very bizarre you can find out how they came up with the name and all that i'm not going to spoil that but uh and then we can move on to the next one which i found interesting as well is actually number six on our list so it's two slots down from jethro toll um and this one's a little less surprising because i feel like we've heard the term but it feels like it's messed up or or it feels like a cartoon term or like a movie term, you know, like one of those things that you're like, oh, that's like, I've heard that in a movie. Megadeth, one of the greatest metal bands ever. Apparently Dave Mustaine, you know, was a drunkard in Metallica. He was too much. Um, he would just pull pranks on people and stuff. There's a whole bunch of lists we have on that. Um, but he, they ended up kicking him out of Metallica in case you didn't know, replacing him with Kirk Hammett. Um, and they bought him a ticket home, a bus ride ticket home. And on the bus ride, he was just, you know, down on himself, just, ugh. and um, he was scribbling lyrics on a, you know, piece of paper. And he looks at the back of this pamphlet that he had picked up just to write on or look at. And it was an anti-nuclear leaflet. And it said, the arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid no matter what the peace treaties come to. Megadeth is a term for like a major explosion, right? It's like an atomic explosion. The, the, oh, the count of okay. basically the body count after a, a, a nuclear explosion. So um, he chose to go with Megadeth. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and I mean, who would have thought? But he, he dropped the A in death. So it's, it looks a little cooler, you know? He found that Pink Floyd had actually once gone by the Megadeths at some point. Ah. Um, so he felt like he had to change the name a little bit, even more so. That's just an interesting little tidbit. I had no idea Pink Floyd was called the Megadeth. No, I mean, you did I, and that's quite a, a weird kind of 
factor no as well, isn't it? Because you wouldn't have put Pink Floyd in the, well, I'm guessing obviously the early music, you wouldn't put that with Megadeths, would you? <laughs> Not now anyway. Not at all. Are you kidding me? No, no way, no way. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever put, I mean, maybe once I started, you know, with animals and stuff on, <laughs> I would expect something like that, but that was still Pink Floyd to me. Um, but that's all I've got on that. We, we have a bunch of facts on, on Dave Mustaine and all that. You can always look yep. that up. Um, he is definitely one of the, like, he's turned Christian and all this stuff. There's so much on this guy. He's nuts. Um, and then we can move on to the third, the last, unfortunately, the last uh, node or the last fact that I have, um, which is rather somber, but I thought it was definitely the most interesting one and most history packed for sure. The band that I chose to to leave for last, and I think it's the best one, is, is Joy Division. Short-lived, packed a lot of, you know, massive, massive hits, um, just changed music forever, massive impact. Um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, the Ian Curtis, uh, off himself, unfortunately, uh, just after the album had dropped. But the name of the band is actually taken from a book written by a Holocaust survivor, um, which already is, you know, what, what could this be about? Um, but apparently Joy Division was a term that camp guards used to, uh, it's what they called brothels within uh, concentration camps, Ooh. which I think is crazy just based on like the message and everything that Joy Division really is. That is mad all way around, isn't it? Brothels within concentration camps. I mean, that's sickeningly yeah, I mean, horrible. And <laughs> obviously, the the history behind it is is all sorts of twisted and and messed up. But it it, it was just incredibly surprising to to find out that that yeah, Joy Division was the name for something so negative in history and so yeah such a weird yeah. fact man. especially with the connotations of joy and you put it together kind of joy division you think it's a nice bright upbeat sparkly thing don't you and you know what i mean i don't know the more you read into it it's just and and this just adds a whole nother dimension honestly like who would have ever thought about that um but obviously we have all these facts yeah. here um and and that's just number seven out of like 15 so <laughs> Um, we've got a whole <laughs> bunch of band names inspired by history. Give give another dimension to the, your favorite band, perhaps. Absolutely, indeed. So we'll check that out at Ranker.com and at History of Rock on Facebook. Maudi, thank you very much for joining us this week. It's been a pleasure as always. Yes, sir. A pleasure. I'll be waiting for the next one. There you go. You learn something new every day, don't you? Head over to History of Rock on Facebook to find out more about those band names and reasons for why they got the name and loads of other weird and wonderful facts and lists of rock star behaviours and all that sort of stuff. Right, now it's time for the top five. And this week, because it's the last episode before Christmas, it's going to be the top five alternative Christmas rock songs from classic rock artists. Now, we know all the classics, you know, like Queen, Thank God It's Christmas, and Lennon's Merry Christmas War is Over, Paul McCartney, Beach Boys, Pretenders, Springsteen, and others like this. So this list is going to be the top five alternative rock Christmas songs that you're probably you're not going to get to hear on your mainstream radio stations this festive time. So you may know some, you may not know some, but here we go. This is the top five alternative Christmas rock songs from classic rock artists, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is from the band's 2017 festive offering of the same name. The track is last on the album, which contains some great covers, but this is one of their own numbers. It's upbeat, rocking and loud, and ends in what sounds like a drunken stupor. At number five is Cheap Trick's Christmas Christmas. 
At four is a song that appeared on a huge album for ACDC that contained the hit single Thunderstruck in 1990. Angus Young says the song was written with Donald Trump in mind as he was big in the news at the time. Remember, 1990. (laughs) At number four is the sleazy Mistress for Christmas by ACDC. At three is a track from another festive album called A Twisted Christmas, released in 2006. It's typically loud and brash, and is a rework of the familiar 12 Days of Christmas. At number three is Twisted Sister with Heavy Metal Christmas. The song at number two is the closing track on the 1989 album Brain Drain. You're more likely to have heard this one, to be fair. It's appeared on a few Christmas movies, including Christmas at the Cranks. It's a great track from Punk Royalty. And number two is the Ramones' Merry Christmas, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight. And at number one is the oldest of the five, coming from 1977. It tells the story of a department store Santa being beaten up by a bunch of kids asking for money as toys are impractical. It's from one of the best bands the UK has produced, in my opinion. The number one alternative Christmas rock song from classic rock artists is the Mighty Kinks with their track, Father Christmas. And if you've not heard that, go check it out now. And that's it for episode 12, and that's it for us for 2020. It's been an insane year for everyone. I grieve for everyone who's lost a loved one this year due to the awful virus that swept the globe. I'm one of millions as well who's lost their livelihoods due to the economic downturn as well, so I sympathise with everyone finding themselves out of work. It's been a tough year not seeing family and friends as much as we would have liked. We've not travelled as we've planned either. Life has well and truly been put on hold, but oddly... I find comfort in music, many people do. So continue to put on your classic rock albums and favourite bands and put on familiars like, I don't know, Zeppelin 4 or Sgt Peppers or Hotel California, Brothers in Arms or Dark Side of the Moon or, or whatever it is. Or maybe some of the newer albums. If you've not seen them yet or heard them yet, check out the three massive ones that came out this year from the likes of ACDC or Deep Purple and the brilliant Blue Oyster Cult. Just put it on, play it loud and let music heal the soul. From me... I hope you have a lovely Christmas and a great new year wherever you are, wherever you spend it. And thank you so much for spending your time listening to Vintage Rock Pod this year. I really, really do appreciate it. Please do continue to spread the word. Tell your friends and family to get listening. It's lockdown again here in the UK, so plenty of time to listen in. There's some great stories for everyone to enjoy on these episodes. There's some really big name guests on the past shows already. Also, catch up with us on social media. Come on there, say hi. We're on most platforms. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube as well. Leave us a review and a five-star rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. It all helps. And if you fancy coming on and chatting with me about your love of rock in the future episodes, then drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until 2021 then, and episode 13, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them... My music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.